All right, so welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. It is the end of Women's Month, and I didn't deliver to you some of the things that I said that I would, but I will continue to deliver it to you throughout the year, right? Um, There's no such thing as like having a Black History Month or a Women's History Month. I mean, every part of our year should be incorporating uh, the celebration of diversity, of culture, of gender, and just bringing that type of awareness. And so I want to kind of start off today with a conversation and a question, which is like, what is the scope of pastoral duties? And I bring this up because, you know, there have been some questionings of me uh, at certain times about like, okay, like what's the scope of your duty and like, why do you choose to cover some topics versus not cover other topics? And so, and also just to kind of be like, Pastors have to stay in their lane also. Like, pastors are not trained counselors. So, you know, for a pastor to offer pastoral counseling and to tell a couple that they're going to give you marriage couples counseling, it really is outside of their scope, right? They're not trained counselors. They might have a lot of experience with people in their congregation. They might be a wise person, but a wise person is also a person who says, I want to defer you to an expert. I want to defer you to somebody who works in working out marital relationships. Um, if you come to your pastor with uh, issues regarding depression, you know, his, his job is not to help you out of that depression, right? Or her job is not to help you out of that depression. Uh, one, they would defer you to some good counselors. So first of all, a pastor may be having a good network of people that they can defer other people to, whether that be marriage counselors, uh, personal counselors, uh, social work, knowing what's happening in the community as far as the social services that are offered um, to help people financially, emotionally, all that type of stuff. But for example, and it's going to make sense in a second while I'm saying this, but like, if I go to a pastor and say, I'm dealing with depression, right? The pastoral counseling function is to be like, okay, well, well, how does that align with your faith? Um, that person might have fear to say, well, if I take medication for my depression, am I not acting in faith, right? Am I not uh, uh, really trusting that the Lord will fix my problems? And so, and if I do this, am I going to be in trouble with God? So like, that's, those are the questions that pastors can answer and saying, look, you know, God gave the gift of healing uh, to certain people. And within the society, we have doctors uh, who are, are trained professionals to help in that area and to navigate whether or not medication would be right for you. So talk to a therapist, talk to your doctor, talk to a lot of people who can help come together with a sense of like, would this be the right uh, course of treatment for you? But is this against the law of God? Does this mean that you're not having faith? No, God recognizes that we deal with sickness and disease in this life. And he would never tell somebody, you know, you just had a head trauma. Don't go to the hospital. You need to have faith, right? But sometimes we can have that type of thinking when it comes to mental illness. Um, And I hate to even say mental illness because it makes it sound like somebody is crazy. What I like to say is mental injury, right? Things happen in our life that injure us. And recuperating from that, recovering from that, maybe even lifelong injury has been done to a person, right? And they now have to manage those injuries. Just like if somebody, you know, if their arm got cut off in an accident, 
we wouldn't expect them to grow another arm. We would uh, counsel them in, in how to now live a life with one arm. So it's the same thing with, with mental injury. So what is the scope of pastoral counseling or the scope of pastoral duties, right? It is to teach the word of God and it is to, to, to share, okay, you know, this is what it means to, to, to be redeemed, to be renewed. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is what he did on earth. This is the model and example of humanity that he's given us to live to. This is how we obtain to it through faith in him alone, because we're so broken that we can never obtain to that. But he does help give us a, a power to, in some measure, be transformed into his likeness through the Holy Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. Like those are some doctrinal teachings of like, okay, answering the big problem, right? Pastoral duties are always answering a question, right? And if we don't have a question, then the information that we're giving isn't really settling with anybody. So the question is, you know, I keep disappointing myself and I don't think I'll ever be a good human being. I feel like a terrible person and I don't know how, I, 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 I carry a sense of guilt with me and I don't know how to get rid of it then the answer is Jesus Christ, right? The answer is he has uh, uh, taken away that guilt. He knows that you are fallen and he is now, he will give you power uh, when asked for. And also not just on the journey alone, but like maybe the power that he gives you is through group therapy, right? To overcome things that are habitual and embedded into our nature, uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Like these are things that are, are, are parts of our healing that happen within community. So he can give us power to overcome, right? But he's also saying, don't beat yourself up. I've paid the debts and you're free in me. Another question, I'm afraid about what happens when I die. I'm afraid to die. I, I, I've lost some loved ones and now I'm also in a space where I am sad and that I'll never see them again. And then that's when the answer of like, okay, well, in the final day, you know, uh, God will resurrect the dead and there will be an accounting of, of the life and those hidden in Christ will be resurrected and this and that. And there's all kinds of questions that would arise out of that too, right? A lot of fear of like, oh, what if this person didn't know God? Can they still be saved? Short answer, yes. There's a saying, Jesus is ontologically required uh, for salvation, but not epistemologically required. And I'm probably saying that a little bit wrong, but basically like he is the source of salvation, but you don't have to know that he's the source of salvation in order for you to be saved. Um, so that's like the short answer to that. But pastoral duties is about how to work out the questions that we encounter in our daily life, um, the questions that we encounter in our relationships, the questions we, the, the bigger questions about what is my purpose and what happens when I die and I'm struggling, where can I go for help? These are questions that pastors answer. And so to think that theology is just this set of information that is sterile and, and subtracted from the actual life that we encounter is, is, a, is a great misnomer, right? For example, somebody says, I'm dealing with racism. Not only that, I'm dealing with the trauma of it. I deal I am traumatized by racism. I am traumatized to the point that I have a crisis of my identity. I am traumatized to the point that I am dealing with resentment and fear and hatred. 
and I am, and I feel stuck in a system that is set against me in oppression, what do I do, right? And the first thing that pastoral duties would be is to say, to recognize that injustice and say, it is an injustice. And one also, um, let's not, let's not bypass this very important part. That person is going to need counseling. You know, I don't think we have enough people who are in counseling, to be honest with you, uh, like working with really good, qualified, trained professionals to help us work through the many traumas of life that we go through. A pastor is not supposed to do it all. But in that situation, a pastor would say, I want you to know how God thinks about you. Like, let me just reinvigorate the picture of God towards you, right? God is a loving God. And that, that, that he created you to be the skin pigment and the skin tone that you are. You are perfect. You are divine in the creation that he has made. And the injustice against you is an injustice against God himself. This dehumanization of a, of a creature reflects upon the creator. This indignity that has happened to you is an indignity that happened to God Almighty, and he will not rest until justice is, is meted out on your behalf. Like our job as pastors is to say, this is what God thinks in this situation. It's to know the scriptures well enough that we can be able to give that type of interpretation. That if somebody is not sure, you know, uh, how God sees them because they're so damaged by how their society has treated them or a relationship that they've been in, then that's a pastor's job to say, like, this is what right, this is where the line of right and wrong is in God's eyes. It's not to say you need to forgive. You need to do better work at uh, handling your resentment. And you need to fix your own trauma that you've been going through. And that, you know, stop blaming it on society. Like that is not at all a pastor's job, right? A pastor's job is to recognize the injustice, to, to reframe how God sees someone, and then to mark out a course of action and to say, okay, you know, I stand with you in this and I'm going to put my shoulder under the yoke to bear it with you. A woman comes to a pastor and says, my boyfriend, my husband, my spouse is beating me. Right? The job of that pastor is not to say, well, let me now, let, let's do some couples counseling. Let, let, let's talk about it because, you know, there's probably some stuff going on in this relationship that we really need to, to work out together and I can help you. No, a pastor is not trained in dealing with domestic violence in a counseling setting in that way. Uh, first of all, any counselor worth their salt will never, ever do couples counseling where there is domestic violence because the, that setting of counseling is only used as a tool to perpetuate that violence, right? So a counsel will usually recommend, you know, one separate counseling. They will advocate for her to, to move to a place towards safety and that, he, that the person who is the aggressor has to deal with their abuse, like solely as a, as a them issue, not as a, this person made me upset. And so I know it's solely an act of control. It's solely an act of intimidation, but it has everything to do with a control over another person. And they need to deal with that and take accountability with that. And usually it's years, 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 years of counseling 
that that person has to go through uh, before they're even before a counselor will even allow them to be into something like couples counseling. So that aside, a pastor's job in that situation is not to offer couples counseling. A pastor's job is to say, okay, one, what are your resources right now? You know, um, you know, are, are, do you have a place that you can go? Do you have a place that you can stay? Are you talking with a social worker? Are you working with a counselor? Here are some resources that I have. I know this social worker. I know this counselor. Do we need to get you out today? How, do, you, do you want me to go with you to, to, to press charges? Uh, what happened to you was a crime. And you don't have to protect the person who did this to you. Like, we can go down and file charges today, and I will go with you. And secondarily, to, to, to clear up the theological part of that, which is the internal barrier that that person faces to say, I don't think I can leave because, because I think if I leave, I'm going to be disappointing God or the only uh, course for me uh, because I'm a Christian, like the only grounds for, ma- for a divorce uh, is if that person has committed adultery. And I don't know if they have committed adultery. I just know that they put their hands on me. And a pastor's job is to say, first of all, if if somebody is hurting you, adultery is one form of abuse, but physical abuse is also abuse. So when somebody is hurting you within that marriage covenant, you have the right to leave. They've broken the bonds of love. And if that is a space where you are feeling belittled and you are feeling uh, 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 damaged, you are going through, through actual trauma that is going to now follow you, that you will now be suffering PTSD from, like you have a duty to yourself and I'm not going to judge you either way of what, what you decide to do, but like you have to prioritize yourself and that God is okay with you walking away from this marriage. You are not going to be condemned in the eyes of God. In fact, there are many uh, examples in the Bible of God saying, you know, for example, this is one I love to use, and I've used this before in another episode if you've listened. Um, The example, I think it's in Leviticus, where the law of the ox that gores, an owner has an ox, and the ox gets out of its pen, and it gores somebody to death. In that case, you kill the ox and you kind of recompense, recompense the family in some type of way. But if you had a knowledge that this ox has a habit of goring and you didn't do what you could to keep other people safe and that, that ox gets out of its pen and kills somebody else, the owner is now liable and the owner will be put to death along with the ox. And what that tells me is that if we have knowledge that this person is dangerous, that a person is dangerous, and that they are liable to gore, right? They're liable to hit me. They're liable to hurt me. Then we have an obligation to place ourselves in safety. And so a pastor's duty is to say, like, to take out the roadblocks and to say, if you need to leave, God does not condemn you. Don't stay because of him. Don't stay because you think Jesus is requiring this of you. No, 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 no. Like, let me clear that up for you theologically. And also, to support them in the other steps that they might need to take in moving from danger to safety. So sometimes, and the reason why I'm saying this is like, sometimes we have 
just a wrong idea of what the scope of pastoral duties is. And sometimes pastors have a wrong idea of what, what they're able to do. And they do more harm because they don't stay in their lane. <laughs> you know, if you think that you're a counselor, but you're not, stop. That's not to say that you have no ability to give any type of counsel, right? You can share from your experience. You can share the wisdom that God has given you. But also wisdom is in a, uh, is in a company of counselors, right? You should be getting your pastoral input. You should be getting your therapist's input. You should be getting your doctor's input. Like having that type of uh, symphony of counselors in your life is wisdom. So when people say things like, you know, the Bible and the pulpit is not a place for the social gospel, it doesn't make any sense to me. Because if the gospel does not have legs and arms and feet and hands and eyes to see and ears to listen about the real world, then it's, then it's impotent. It has no effect on our lives. It's just some knowledge ascent that we have in our brains that live separately from our embodied experiences. So, for example, when it comes to women, this is something that strikes me in particular uh, because I am a woman and I'm a woman of color and I see it happen to me and to my friends and to my colleagues. And it is this some of the things, you guys, some of the things and the stories I could share would be crazy to you. It would be crazy to you. And I don't know if I have permission to share them, so I'm not going to. But, I mean, the way that a woman's professional career and ability are diminished because she is a woman and the, the disparity of treatment between her and her male counterparts in many aspects of her life, that, that women aren't treated as seriously professionally. Like they're not treated the same as like, I know you need to get money. I know you need to support yourself and pay for your apartment and have a life, right? That it's like, well, you don't need that much money because your husband's going to be working and you'll probably be at home and like, you don't need that much money. Um, sometimes that's how women are treated in the professional sphere. And I've seen it happen many times to myself and to my friends. And women have to now advocate for themselves in these spheres to say, no, you, you better pay me because I'm worth my salt. In fact, I'm probably better than anybody here and I'm excellent at what I do. And so please show me some respect and please don't make me have to ask again. And if I have to ask you again, then, you know, I'm done, right? And so one, you know, women get frustrated in these types of spheres. Then they get labeled as being aggressive and, and you know, unwomanly in some sort uh, in some way. And not a lot of thought is given to the struggle, right, that this person has had to go through um, to be able to get the respect that they have in their field. And so what is, you know, what is one thing you could do as a pastor? What is the scope of your pastoral duties when you're dealing with inequality based on gender? Well, one thing you could do is you could advocate for egalitarianism, right? You can advocate for the dignity and equality of women. 
in a way that um, is going to challenge your members. I have seen Ephesians 5 used so much this month alone that I just want to puke, right? That it's like, you know, wives submit to your husbands. Well, Paul also said, uh, slaves submit to your masters. Is Paul advocating for slavery? No, he's speaking to a cultural context. Professors will even speak in this way. And I don't believe in male headship of a home. I just don't. And so, you know, burn me at the stake if you will. But I, it, it's not, I, don't, I don't believe it's biblical, right? I believe that for a time, Paul and Jesus and God were working within a cultural construct. So this goes back to my last episode, um, Is God a Feminist? You know, that when sin entered the world, there was a power imbalance that would shift. Women who, are, who tend to be weaker in bodily strength, now this is just on average, this is not in totality, um, but they're very strong emotionally, they're, they're very wise, women are strong. Like all the strengths that God imbued women with, are these strengths that if somebody is just looking for sheer overt force and power, they would overlook these strengths. The strength of patience, the strength of grace, the strength of love, the strength of forgiveness, the strength of charm, and beauty, intelligence, uh, like all of these things that a woman brings to the table that, that are strong qualities. Because of sin, these delicate little facets of, of who a woman is would be completely like just railroaded because the only thing that we would see now is power in a very overt, strong displays of masculine strength. And so women and children would be very much not respected. So sin caused patriarchy. Sin caused patriarchy. This was not God's idealism. This is not how he ordered the world to be, right? So Paul in the New Testament, as he is working within the cultural context that still had people who owned slaves and women were still seen as property and not able to work within their society, you know, he says, within this construct, you know, this is what we can do, right? Unfortunately, he wasn't advocating for an overturning of the construct because there was so much controversy already with Christians that he wanted to mitigate the type of suffering that Christians would endure if they were to be more radical. He wanted to keep the name of Christ from being radicalized because he understood how some people in their own nature, you know, in their own kind of radical idealism, that they might call themselves Christians and push things in a way that would cause a lot of harm to the greater Christian community. So in some ways, Paul was a moderate. And I can't even judge whether or not that was the right or wrong thing to do. Like we automatically assume like Paul did everything perfect. And he was absolutely, uh, and some of you listening to this are probably like falling out of your chair right now uh, with me saying this, but we, we sometimes overemphasize the perfection of these characters within the Bible and not seeing at the same time that they were human. I'm sure that Paul is a better human being than I am. Like, I, I'm, I, I, I wouldn't even argue that. Like, I would think he's an exceptional person. I don't see that I could have endured the things that he endured and still kept this level of humility and love and all the way into the day of his beheading. He is an excellent human being, the, the epitome of Christian character. Uh, and at the same time, it doesn't mean that he's made all the right choices. You know, should he have pushed more in a certain area? Um, 
to kind of advocate for the idealisms of God. In some ways he did. Galatians 3.28, neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. I mean, he was radical enough. And he, he paid the price for it. For the little bit of the inches that he moved forward in his culture, he, he paid the price with his life, right? So I'm sure if he would have been more radical, he probably would have lost his life a lot sooner. So I'm sure there was wisdom in everything that he carried out and the ways that he carried it out. But the gospel does not stop with Paul, right? The progress that we've made does not stop with him. We continue moving forward and living out these little slivers of hope that Paul embedded into his writings of equality, of equality. And so some people will look at Paul's writings and not see the nuance of everything that's happening there and say, well, this still needs to be today. Women, submit to your husbands, because that is the order of, of the day. Um, no, <laughs> that's not the order of the day, just like the order of the day is not to own slaves, right? So the order of the day is equality. Right? And so to begin to move misogynistic and patriarchal language and thinking out of our pulpits and out of our congregations and giving women freedom and modeling what that looks like. And I guarantee you there will be some women who have internalized misogyny, have internalized the structures of patriarchy, and will fight you. And you might think, well, you know, uh, this woman says that she likes to submit to her husband and this is what she feels is godly and and you are uprooting her and she's a woman and so you should listen to her. And a lot of people will use that as examples and say, well, see, you know, this woman enjoys patriarchy. So, you know, you're wrong. And <laughs> just because there's one person or a few people who say, I like patriarchy and this works for me, does not mean that we don't need to take a look at it. And and to say, what is the Bible really pointing towards? It's, it's not to now become a feminist expert because you're not. Um, it's not to become a gendered expert because you're not. But it's to look at the Bible critically and to open the door for your parishioners and congregation to say, it's not a sin for women to be equal to men. It's not a sin if two people want to co-rule a household together. It's not a sin if there is mutual submission within this dynamic. And if they choose autonomously amongst themselves to say, honey, I want you to lead out in prayer. I want you to lead out in the spiritual endeavors of this family. One, if I was a male, I would say, no, honey, I do not accept that responsibility because I'm going to need you at times because my faith is going to be weak and I'm going to need you to come up beside me and encourage my faith. So I will try my best, but I would love it if we shared those duties because for that to fall on me makes me have to feel like I'm a savior. Like I would reject that dynamic, even if I was a guy, you know, it might seem beneficial at first, but it's really not in the long term, in the long run. So, you know, uh, is patriarchy biblical? No. Did patriarchy happen in the Bible? Yes, right? But is this God's ideal? No. So yes. Well, uh, what can you do with gender equality from the pulpit? Yeah. A pastor's, a pastor's duty is to remove, to remove the barriers that exist and to be able uh, to help people work theologically with their faith and their practical life. 
and to say, for them to know what is sin. If somebody comes to you and says, I've been stealing from my job, you can say, you know what? I don't think God wants that from you, right? God is a God of honesty. He's a God of truth and justice and righteousness. And so you've been stealing from your job. You know, I'd really, that sucks because that one, <laughs> one, that's a crime. So, uh, you know, you might be going to jail. I don't know, but I would definitely stop and maybe talk to your boss and maybe look to see what you could do to recompense that money. Like, I don't know. But like, there are some things that, you know, we can say are within the scope of pastoral duties that are interacting with practical life. And we're supposed to give a reflection of how does God feel about this, right? You don't have to be a counselor. You don't have to be a therapist. You don't have to be a PhD, uh, uh, you know, political science major, right? You don't have to be a historian, but you have to know how to integrate things that we are dealing with in our present day in a way that makes the Bible come alive. And to say that the God who wrote this, the God who inspired the writers of the Bible, the God who spoke to the prophets and to the kings, Jesus Christ and Paul and all the, the apostles and disciples, that we can take what was happening in their time and get a greater picture of a God who exists now, of a God who exists today, and the way that he would be helping us interact with the society in which we live and to help people come out of fear. So many people are living in fear and not love. So many people have a picture of God that is God who is a tyrant, God who is looking and waiting for them to make the wrong move. And a pastor's job is to remove that barrier and say, you know, God loves you. He's not looking for you to make a mistake. And I know you might be afraid about getting on that medication. I know you might be afraid to leave your husband. I know you might be afraid to ask for that raise as a woman. But like, let me show you what God thinks. And let me be here and walk with you in that. Because uh, God is a God of love. A God of wholeness and a God of healing. And he is for you. Not against you. So thanks for watching. I mean, this is my little tidbit about the scope of pastoral duties. Just, you know, for people to have a better understanding of like what to expect from a pastor, but also to, to know that you might be asking of a pastor the wrong things, right? If you're asking him to be your marriage counselor, he shouldn't be, or she shouldn't be. If you're asking your pastor, should you or should you not take medication? It really, the framework in which he should approach that really is, removing the barriers, deferring to people who are experts, and, and giving you a greater picture of God's love and compassion in the midst of your hurt and your suffering. So I hope this gives you a better idea of what that relationship should look like and how to interact in your daily walks of life.